American Indian Studies Center here at UCLA has asked for every event, class, and gathering on campus to begin with a land acknowledgement. We recognize the continued legacy of settler colonialism with UCLA as a land-grant institution. We are on occupied territory, and we recognize the strength, resilience, and capacity of the Tongva peoples in this land. We also pay our respects to elders past and present of all indigenous peoples, the Los Angeles region, Turtle Island, or what has been called the United States and throughout the world, and extend our recognition to all their relations, past, present, and emerging. So I would like everyone to just pause for a moment, take that in, uh, join me in taking three deep breaths at your own pace. Turn a blind eye You can hear the people cry Wake up and be strong And fight for what is wrong Welcome to Bold, Conversations About Race, a podcast brought to you by Surge National in collaboration with Small Beans Comedy and produced by White People for Black Lives. I'm one of your hosts, Yvette. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm your other host, Dahlia, and I use they, them pronouns. Today, we have an interview with Hamid Khan of Stop LAPD Spying Coalition from our special event at UCLA that we had way back when, before the pandemic, and we'll be talking about surveillance and repression. All right, so today's topic is going to be on surveillance and repression, and we have one of our favorite organizers in Los Angeles, Hamid Khan of Stop LAPD Spying Coalition here with us today. And we're also here on the campus of UCLA with a lovely audience who is witnessing a live recording, which we're very excited and honored to be here and to be able to partner with UCLA. We are thrilled. Thank you so much for coming here and lending us your wisdom on all that is surveillance. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to the work of Stop LAPD Spying Coalition? Sure. Well, first, uh, thank you very much for the invite. I'm really, really honored to be in company of such uh, badass people. <laughs> you know, and it's an honor. Um, my own journey in organizing goes back a little over three decades. I uh, am an immigrant from Pakistan. I came in the late 70s, 1978, 79. And, um, and just kind of going through that whole struggle, I was undocumented for, for, for uh, years. And my first organizing was in Orange County, which just happened completely just to by, by, well, not by accident, was going on. Like five years into living here, there was a, a nightclub that was blatantly discriminating against uh, folks folks from getting in. Um, and then uh, we talked about it. This was the Red Onion restaurant, and I remember in Santa Ana, uh, and organized uh, against the Red Onion and they, in the, in the, uh, as a result of that organizing, they ended up losing their liquor license. And uh, they ended up, uh, I guess the chain finally shut down about a year after that. It was a pretty big chain. Um, and then uh, by, as a South Asian coming from Pakistan, um, one of the things was also looking at the landscape of organizing in LA, because I'd been doing student organizing in Lahore. 
uh, in Pakistan and other sorts of like, you know, troublemaking as well. Uh, particularly uh, when I left, it was right after the, the third martial law and the military regime in Pakistan. So, um, so they had been organizing around that too. Um, and then in 1990, uh, helped create the South Asian Network, which was one of the first grassroots uh, organizations in LA, uh, looking at the, the, the impact, the conditions of the South Asian immigrant community from Bangladesh, from Sri Lanka, from Nepal, from Pakistan, um, around economic justice, around racial justice, and also within the community around gender violence, around homophobia um, and child sexual abuse. So. So in a sense, it became an all-encompassing, uh, very deeply sort of inter intersectional organizing, both within the community and then also challenging the community itself. Um, you know, it's, it gets pretty intense when you're speaking about homophobia in a mosque and child sexual abuse in a, in a temple and places mm -hmm. and spaces like that. So, and then from there, um, I transitioned in 2010, um, and then I was gonna take a break uh, you know, just hang up my shoes for a minute, but then, uh, but then some of the programs that was I was already working on at South Asian Network were still kind of hanging in there and just on the on the side of uh, just as a as a thorn, and amongst them was uh, this this uh, this this understanding and analysis post 9/11 that how rapidly uh, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency tactics were being incorporated into domestic policing, how. The, the, the programs, the tools, the tactics that were being used in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and particularly looking at the Los Angeles Police Department, which is very much a counterinsurgency uh, a tactical uh, police force, um, what they were doing in one program in particular, a suspicious activity reporting program, which has now laid the groundwork for a lot of everyday policing now and how policing is evolving in the United States around uh, behavioral surveillance and data mining and data-driven policing. So that's what led to, and just reached out to my comrades, folks that I'd built with in LA, uh, at LA CAN, at Youth Justice Coalition, and some of the other organizations, and came together. And that's what laid the foundation of Staff LAPD Spine Coalition. Look at that, I never knew. <laughs> All right. Can you expand a little bit about how technology is used by law enforcement agencies? Something that we've heard you call the architecture of surveillance? Sure. Um, so for, for the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, uh, the way we look at technology is not just the sort of the mechanical functioning of a particular thing like cell phones or, or license plate readers, but, but technology more is in the context of practice as well. Uh, that how and what are the techniques that are used both on a, on a, a human level and on a mechanical level, how people are being traced and tracked and monitored. So in that, both the actions, and it, it really comes from our sort of journey towards abolition, that what sort of abolition technologies are we developing as a practice and deployment as well uh, when you're confronted with, with carceral technologies, which means incarceration and uh, living in a virtual carceral state. So uh, in that, what we did was one of the first things was a couple things that mapped out the LAPD's architectural surveillance, which included through a bunch of public records, research, and spent a whole lot of time identifying what were the various ways that people's information was being gathered, both on a human level, 
uh, and on this mechanical level as well. So we've kind of mapped it out that helps us in understanding and really kind of breaking through the silos as well, like in, in a sense where, you know, we're looking at oppression as being deeply intersectional. So resistance is also intersectional as well. So in that, helping understand that what are the various points and of deployment uh, through people are being traced and tracked and monitored. Um, uh, yeah, so that's where the architectural surveillance comes in. You were really integral in um, framing the current narratives around risk assessments and the way that we understand them. Can you give folks uh, a little overview around what a risk assessment is and how uh, that's being used both locally and also throughout the country? Right. Um, well, for myself, and of course, I want to honor uh, uh, several other folks who've done some amazing work in organizing, including yourself, Yvette, and, you know, folks like Pete White and John Rafling and some of the other folks who've been really on the front lines. But I think one of the, one of the, 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 the guiding values of the Stop LAPD Spine Coalition is to desensationalize the language, to desensationalize and debunk and bring the language down to a ground level from a 30,000 foot level where a lot of these terminologies become really sensational. Uh, and then they become very exclusive in people who speak about it or use that. I mean, risk assessment on a very fundamental level is just assessment of somebody as a risk, uh, if you kind of just put it in reverse. I think that the, before we get into the mechanics of risk assessment, the question is that in, on, on an economic level, cultural level, social level, political level, structural level, who is considered a risk and how, so, and how that risk is assigned. So, um, so in a sense, uh, looking at the world of surveillance as well, um, uh, the, 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 and, I'm, and I'm reminded of Simone Brown's, uh, and actually we, Simone Brown is a professor at UT Austin who's done some really seminal work around uh, surveillance and during the times of slavery. Um, and, and mapped out, so we, we even use uh, Simo, uh, Professor Brown's quote as the starting point of our report that we released before the bullet hits the body, uh, that surveillance is, uh, uh, is a story of black folks, it is in fact anti-blackness. So in a sense, when, and, and this is where, so I'm, I'm kind of just bringing it all together in a way, just my mind sort of thinking intersectionally as well, um, that Surveillance on a mainstream level, the conventional understanding of surveillance has always been rooted through a very white-oriented and white-imagined and white definition of, of invasion of privacy. That's how it has been seen. But what we've been doing is to really, which is again a very, very privileged space to be, to kind of flip the script that surveillance is in fact a 24-hour, everyday methodology uh, to keep an eye and to trace and track and monitor the suspect body. So now who is that suspect body and how did they become suspect in the first place? So in that, in the United States, you know, we can't really have a conversation without grounding ourselves in race and poverty, uh, sexuality. So when we come to race, uh, it really becomes that you're being by itself as a black person or a person of color or a trans body, that you are forever deemed suspect. You're outside the norm of what socially acceptable a body would be. So in that then, you know, your body is already a cumulative piece of a risk. So in order to maintain order, uh, you know, that's where police comes in and slave patrols and that long history of that. But that, so, so who would be a threat to the existing system? Who would be a threat to the existing order? So in that race and sexuality and gender plays a very key role and class as well. So. So when we talk about risk assessment, 
I think here's, there's this, this whole methodology um, that, which is nothing new, but now it has become much more sort of uh, sensationalized as a result of scientific language. Because looking at the being, and, and you know, just being a non-black person, but being a person of color, of a particular ethnicity and a certain nationality, uh, my first experience of coming to the US, US as from Pakistani origin, name like Hamid Hussain Khan, undocumented person, that I was the other. So immediately, the otherness is very pronounced uh, in your existence. So, so the other carries a certain level of risk. So in that, how that behavior becomes critical in assessing that person as a risk. So that's the starting point, right? Then comes in the science. So in a sense, we can talk about that how criminality um, and the presumption of guilt on a non-white body has already been assigned. So that because it starts with the relationship with the presumption of guilt and criminality gets assigned. So that's the intellectual framework. So in that then, how do we maintain the, the carceral status of that body? How do we maintain um, that body to be constantly be kept an eye on and considered a threat? So in that, the, the, the language of, of predictive analytics comes, comes in, math and math comes in, statistics comes in, uh, now this whole jargon of artificial intelligence, and, it's, and I'm saying that because it's, all, it's really from our vantage point is absolutely bogus. So risk assessment comes in that based on a person's past or a history, which of course, like, and however they have behaved for whatever reason, they may have had an interaction with the law or other institutions as well, then creates these, you know, your identification points and then where the, your whole data and your being is being processed by data processing systems, so risk score gets assigned. That I'll give you one example of uh, this program, Operation Laser, that you know, some folks are in the room who are a part of dismantling this program, that if, and one example would be that if you're on parole or probation, you're assigned five points. If you ever had a, a gun possession crime, you're assigned five points. If you ever had an interaction with the police, like a stop and frisk, you're assigned one point, on and on and on. So the scoring mechanism takes place, and then you are placed on a risk order that if you are out there in the system, in society, you would be a higher risk. The problem with that is, uh, is that behavior is an infinite concept. Why somebody engaged in a particular behavior and an action is completely left out of the table. So, I mean, I, I spoke a lot, but to bring it all together, are, we are being reassigned and looked at as in a robotic sense that your function can be assessed in a very sort of a, a minute way and then your risk will be assigned and a score will be assigned. In a sense, think about it that how risk assessment is being used in, in renting homes. So whether you're going to be a good tenant or a bad tenant. Risk assessment is being assigned to people who are migrating to the US. Whether you'll be a good immigrant or a bad immigrant, right? So a lot of different variables are taking into place. So risk assessment, it became a pretty big debate around bail reform, that whether a person, if they're allowed to be on bail, whether they would be a risk or not. I would just say very clearly and, and plainly and bluntly that this is such a big hoax that has been developed. And right here, and it's coming from the campuses like UCLA 
and other other UC systems as well. And, and just we're, we're having a big fight on campus against people like Professor Branthingham and various other people who are using predictive analytics and algorithms to, to recreate our being. And data is picked up from very a lot of different points. And our whole being is recreated and represented in a different way. So what would you say around uh, how technology is framed as a more efficient way of reducing crime or reducing incarceration. Those are the arguments that we're hearing around risk assessments as it pertains to pretrial incarceration. If we have a risk assessment, we'll get people in and out real quick. If we have a risk assessment, we're gonna increase efficiency of the system, right? Um, and promote public safety in the process. Uh, what would you what would you answer to arguments around efficiency, and then what would you say to folks that argue that we just need to come up with the perfect algorithm, right? We just need to have a, some uh, a, an algorithm that accounts for bias, that accounts for race, that accounts for um, for folks that have been growing up in certain communities or had more uh, contact with law enforcement. So a uh, couple, several things in that question. Uh, let's start off with the, with the notion of efficiency. Um, and I think this is where one of the other values of the Stop LAPD Spine Coalitions becomes very instructive as well, that everything that we are seeing and talking about is not a moment in time, but a continuation of history. So how it evolved, how it was deployed, how it was used. So while the razzle and dazzle of technology and risk assessment right now, we're speaking in 2019 in November in that context, but you know, just the, the idea of efficiency of how, uh, uh, and I was gonna say use the word troops because they are, they're they are like, you know, just uh, counterinsurgency troops or the cops, how they were deployed in areas which was considered a dangerous area. So now that's where the efficiency deployment of, comes in. Individuals, how they were declared as persons of interest. So if we start building from there, um, before this, not to go back too far, in the 1990s was the CompStat model the computerized statistical model as well, where information would be gathered, and New York City became very big. Bill Bratton made his career out of that. Giuliani became very famous as a result of that as well. Um, so I think more than the efficiency and more than the allocation of resources, we should be looking at the impact. Because the, the narrative and the claim is always gonna be there, but the impact remains that there is a completely a disparate impact on black and brown bodies, particularly the black community, when you do a, a proportionate sort of like, you know, just accounting for populations. Um, it is absolutely like, you know, the, the whole notion of mass, or the, uh, the, the, the experiences of mass incarceration, uh, wrongful convictions, um, you know, various ways to conspire uh, to, 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 to uh, falsify evidences. So I think as we are looking at efficiency, the, the, we have to flip the script and look at the efficient way that how communities have been oppressed over time by the use of these tactics. So for me, at least on a personal level, I don't give any power or an inch to the cops that, you know, because it's not that they're inefficient. They're very efficient in executing the, the, the racist uh, 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 institutions, the prerogatives of, of the institution. That's why, you know, I mean, we don't get into like, you know, one bad apple because the whole institution is a rotten cart. 
So that needs to be dismantled and abolished. So I think that we, so in a sense, efficiency to contain and control people and to, to in a sense, criminalize people is very much there. But for them to say that resources, um, you know, it's an ongoing thing. At what point do we stop and say, no, wait a minute, time out. This is not, this is not gonna happen. So it, it is again, it, it is a ploy, it is a way to take more resources, it is a way to make these excuses about more training, it is a way to expand their workforce as well, and in a sense, here we are today, that in the city of Los Angeles, I think, and I don't know the exact number, that we have less than one half of one half of one tenth of one half percent in youth development, and then for law enforcement, for these to be more efficient, to have more resources, they get over 50% of the general funds in, in of our resources as well. So I think it's again, uh, I don't want to use just one canned answer whether it's efficient or not, but I think like in how are they efficient and what is the impact on our communities really becomes critical to talk about. Right, and it's and it always comes back to public safety, right? Like this is all done in the name of smarter technology for public safety to keep our streets safe and really what's actually happening is severe repression of communities. Right. And, and it is being done, but which communities right. are being kept safe? I right. think that's really where the redlining comes in. That's where really like, you know, the, 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 uh, the uh, ex uh, use of force comes in. That's what really comes in that, you know, which st streets start to be maintained serene. I mean, I just, uh, uh, I remember the, the Rodney King uh, during that uprising, like, you know, just because I wasn't here in the 60s or anything doing Watts. But uh, the second or second day or so, um, you know, you couldn't get in past, you know, I was, I was living on the east side of LA County, you couldn't get past the 110 to go into South Central, you couldn't get, couldn't get south of the 10, because it wasn't just to, 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 to maintain peace in the communities in South Central, it was to defend Beverly Hills mm. and the west side. Mm -hmm. So I think when we talk about these, these efficiencies and deployment of resources, that which community is considered worthy enough uh, or human enough to be kept safe per se, right. uh, which again, I mean, it is such a it is such an inherent contradiction because the level of violence that happens, like sexual violence, gender violence, economic violence that these communities engage in, that uh, but that's a carte blanche right. you know, that is given. That's and, how white supremacy works. <laughs> and, and on that note, around like sort of, I guess an extension of white supremacy is like the communities who are less likely to be impacted by surveillance. Um, it, well, those same people are saying, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you don't have anything to worry about, right? right? So like, well, how would you respond to that argument over like, oh, this is, I don't, you know, I don't care if there are street cameras at every corner, like, I don't care if the police have license plate readers, like, you know, I don't care if they're listening to my phone calls. Um, yeah, I mean, I have two answers to that. One is a very blunt answer, yeah. like, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, that my work is in my communities, which are directly impacted. So really, I mean, I'm, I don't I don't really get caught up into the big tent theory, yeah. that the people of dissimilar, you know, political ideologies who come together, I don't want to sit down with a white wing, <laughs> white racist or a fascist, I have no desire to sit down with, with folks like that, because there's a lot of work that we still need to do in our own communities right. that we have not done. However, you know, if, if having the time to converse, I think the first thing I'll ask him is that, you know, what, what did you do and how did you figure when you were thinking about some running shoes and they showed up on your computer, right? And you were start, mm. starting to look at that. How did that information really come together and what was the process that exactly something that you were looking for shows up on your screen 
and you have you're not even talking. I mean, in a sense, not right. just the thought is being picked up, but you have uh, tapped on. So, in a sense, that's where uh, one of the ways that we have developed this this visual. Going back to Yvette's earlier point, that one is the architectural surveillance, and the other one is the stalker state. That how information moves within various sectors between the public sector and the private sector and the corporate sector and social media and international agencies. So in a sense, that helps in getting the point across to folks to understand that your data, your inf the information sharing environment is so vast and huge that it is regardless of however you think you have not done anything wrong, you are being traced and tracked. So the first question would be that the privilege you have of your own privacy that you're very near and dear to you, what does it mean? Do you feel you are private then? Do mm -hmm. you feel your privacy is being, is being protected? So I think there's definitely been opportunities to talk to folks and then people start looking at it and having these aha moments. And there are other ways to have these conversations too, but kind of keeping it on a baseline level. Uh, I think sometimes these uh, uh, visuals and, and storytelling and, 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 and helping people just kind of get beyond their myopia also helps. Got it. Thank you. You mentioned a report that you all put out before the bullet hits the body. Can you describe the findings of that report? Yeah, that was, uh, um, was exactly what the title says, that what are the conditions on the ground uh, before the bullet hits the body. So what are the, what are the, how does that contact get made? What are the programs that are being unleashed on, on various communities? And, and what we found was, was quite telling, quite frankly, like, you know, just, just talking about risk assessment and predictive analytics, that in a sense, it is also helping us shape our and expand our narrative as well that while the body was a target, but it was really about the control of land in the background. And it really just kind of helped us in, 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 in bringing back that, you know, when we talk about settler colonialism and we talk about the United States as a settler co uh, colonial state, it is not an, a, a stretch from our imagination. This is happening right now. Um, you know, so in a sense, um, and I just want to honor my comrade, Jamie Garcia, who just walked in and basically was, led, was leading our, our data-driven policing fight against the LAPD. Um, and so we, we, we found several things. One was um, that how the, the idea of risk assessment was taking place against individuals who are just in the, in the process of rebuilding their lives. How they had created, how they even think of naming a program. So the, one of the programs is, was Operation Laser that was dismantled this year in April, which stands for Los Angeles Strategic Extraction and Restoration Program. So even the thought of naming it Laser came from the academics and law enforcement agencies that we will go in into the communities and remove tumors with laser-like precision. So now the dehumanization aspect of, of communities had begun. So this is how pathologizing people starts, right? So they are considered as tumors. Then the next piece was like, okay, if they are not wanted for something, how do we still uh, uh, keep a chokehold on people as well? So that's where the risk assessment process comes in, under the guise of person of interest that, okay, if somebody had a previous history, how do we then keep an eye on them and put them in a list? Then the third stage was that they release these bulletins 
with people's faces and their histories and their addresses on it like a most wanted poster and give them to, to cops to keep them in their cars when they're not even wanted for anything, right? So how a virtual carceral state was being created. Then we found out, furthermore, the documentation that we were getting because we filed a lawsuit for public records as well, that what was the intent behind it that how these zones of high threat areas were being created, which gave immunity for the use of force to law enforcement agencies. So for example, we started looking at, okay, these 2016, 2017 murders have been happening of these young, young individuals by the LAPD. And we found out that, uh, for example, Grisharia Mack, who was murdered at, at, uh, at Crenshaw Mall. Crenshaw Mall is a laser zone. Right? Richard Risher, who was killed in, in a housing project, that is a, a laser zone. Kenny Watkins, who was murdered by the LAPD, was murdered in a laser zone. So now you are creating these high threat areas in the communities, which immediately gives you the power that before the bullet hits the body, uh, you know, that you're walking in. Then we saw, then we got these uh, the documentations about hotspots, predictive policing hotspots, which are also based on a history of previous crime and current crime and all of that, which Professor Jeff, Jeff Branthingham has developed as Pretpole. So we asked for data for Central Division, where we are based out of, out of in Skid Row, and that, okay, let's have the, uh, uh, for six months in 2015 and six months in 2018, we says, okay, let's look at the, the hotspots and see how these hotspots are mapped out. And not that, because Skid Row is the most heavily policed community anywhere in the country, but the hotspots were not in Skid Row. What they were doing were they were creating this whole digital redlining noose around Skid Row. So they had created these hotspots, which would require extra deployment of troops, of cops, in that to circle and to quarantine Skid Row. So where the new downtown was going up, where the new development was going up, where Hipsterville was going up, where little Tokyo development is going on, where the art district on the, on the east side of Alameda is going on, where this uh, seventh, south of seventh is, a, is the, is the uh, warehouse district. So in a sense, land becomes very central. Then we saw these anchor points as like, you know, which could be crime triggers. And in those, the assessments they were doing that they had 17 different categories of threat assessments. And the highest level that was assigned to was a single black woman, uh, a single mother, a, a, a black woman, between the ages of 27 and 32 is considered the highest threat level because they, those communities would be devoid of any of what they call collective efficacy um, and social cohesion. So only people who may be retirees and older only can have social cohesion and sense of community, but these folks don't have any sense. And I can go on and on and on. Like this was so clearly vulgar. I mean, and you know, we talk about racism, but it is beyond racism and vulgar as well, that you are looking at a whole community and you're deeming the whole community as a threat, right? And you're just sending extra troops constantly out there under the guise of efficiency and resources. But that's where the targeting comes in. This reminds me a lot of gang injunctions mm -hmm. and the standards that were laid out for what defined a gang member. If it was someone with white socks up to their knees could define whether someone was a, a gang member. Clean white socks, I think it was. Um, it's sick. It is, it is absolutely, it's like a, that's why we say that, you know, the police system, it's a diseased body, 
so it needs to be taken out. And, and this is something where um, you're ex absolutely right. So the, so the chronic offender bulletin program, think of it as gang injunctions and gang databases 2.0. Like it's a much more heightened level. Um, and the good news is that we had filed a lawsuit. We just finished the lawsuit, we won the lawsuit, and uh, we're gonna be having a big announcement on December 10th because we had asked them for the names of all the chronic offender bulletins as well. And this is a, a, one of the very rare moments that we, we really kicked them on that. Congratulations. Yeah, that was a lot of hard work. Yeah. A lot of people's hard work, yeah. That's amazing, that's amazing to hear. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your current campaigns and ways that folks can plug into the work if they are local or if there's anything that folks can plug into nationally, but anything to keep the momentum going so people know how to take action on this issue? Absolutely. So one of the ways the coalition, and just uh, in full disclosure, it's a fully, uh, I'm the only one who gets a stipend, but it's a fully uh, uh, a volunteer organization. The group decided not to get a nonprofit status although we do have a, a fiscal sponsor at LA CAN, um, but it's really a, an amazing participation and contribution of people's time uh, that are really taking the lead and ownership in this thing. So the active campaigns, of course, data-driven policing is a huge piece. We were able to collectively dismantle with a lot of people power, Operation Laser and Chronic Offender Bulletin. Uh, Pretpol is on the target. Um, and then Suspicious Activity Reporting Program. The drones are still there, body cameras. So our goal is very clearly about abolition and dismantlement. We don't fight for reform. There is no such thing as a kinder, gentler policing. Then we also are building the work as well around um, the several working groups, and people are welcome to join. One, one of the working groups is looking at the intersection of surveillance and gender and sexuality. Wow. That how, like, you know, how trans bodies are being surveilled, what is the impact. We're also working, that group is looking to work with sex workers. Uh, we've already been to their meetings, like how sex workers on the street are being impacted as a result of bread pole and hotspot policing, how sex workers online, their lives are being impacted by the stalker state, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, also, we have a whole series going on in partnership with Color Coded, um, and it's called Embody Abolition. Wow. Uh, so looking at that how that, you know, that because it's become, and of course we live in a capitalist system, that now abolition is being funded by foundations. <laughs> like who would have thunk that? That, you know, just wow. Like, so, so in a sense that abolition is not a deliverable, it's a practice, it's right. a lived experience. So we are having our fourth series on December 5th at SoCal Library, and we would love to have people come and join us for that as well. Um, the other working group is looking at data and algorithm and constantly building. Um, we, were, we just started this whole campaign around the algorithmic ecology, that where the algorithm lies, that it's not just the algorithm itself that is being used, but how the algorithm is informed and guided, starting from the ideologies of capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and then the institutions. So it can also help other fights as well to, to ground their algorithm in that fight and see what are the ideologies. Um, so there are several uh, ways that people can plug in. Uh, look constantly, the, a lot of uh, uh, grassroots research is going on. Another working group is looking to debunk this whole language of community policing. Ah. and really kind of looking at it as a counterinsurgency uh, process, that how very methodically, um, you know, law enforcement, just like the U.S. Army and the military goes in as occupying force and identifies some tribal leaders, identifies some religious leaders, identifies some uh, uh, people in the, in the intellectual world or the academy and partner with them as an occupying force. 
that's how exactly what they're doing here. And it drives gentrification. I saw it played out in my neighborhood council where the police came in to help set up a neighborhood watch and the nice white people that moved into our neighborhood, they're just jumping at the bit to be part of a neighborhood watch program to mm -hmm. keep our community safe. So I, I see that insurgency strategy that you were uh, so. laying Very out. Nice. And one last thing I would just say is that we are now also going to be nationally going public because I think we talk about a lot of challenges from the external, but I think there's a lot of challenges within the nonprofit industrial mm -hmm. complex as well. So we are also very much now starting a campaign against the ACLU, and I'm going to announce that against their their, their bogus uh, notions of reform and 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 ordinances and and passing these uh, and legitimizing uh, surveillance. Uh, through through passing laws and one of their main campaign is uh, the community control over police surveillance which is really just it's, it's going to be very damaging in the long run and similarly you know uh, uh, there are major nonprofits we talked about the Vera Institute uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and several others uh, so I think that is also something for our own survival uh, it is incumbent that we need to challenge our own Right. as well because I think that's a much bigger fight than you know we know who the enemy is but this is where it's almost like in our work at some point because you're taking one step forward and you're being pushed five steps back and they're being that's happening by our own as well so I think those are also some of the fights that we have and that seems to be part of this sort of like divide and conquer strategy it's whether Very it's much. in the nonprofit world or even the model of see something say something let's Absolutely. like turn against each other as humans and community together our neighbors every look at everybody with some level of suspicion like Absolutely. It's, yeah and that's how policy carve outs happened and Neonesis in our last episode uh, talked about how uh, there's compromises that happen in policy that carve out some of the most vulnerable folks in our communities. And it's actually not just morally right, but actually strategically right to not allow for those compromises mm -hmm. and carve outs for, for our community. Because they become a liability in the long run. Right. Yeah, from abolitionist principles we learn, we don't want to build anything that we have to tear down in the future, right? Abolition is not against incremental change, but it has to be change that doesn't leave anybody behind. Absolutely. Right. So now we're going to get to some questions from our audience. We have a lot of questions, so we'll see. How much time do we have, Dahlia? We, we probably got about uh, 15 minutes. Okay, we'll, we'll see if we can get through these. So our audience is really curious about that professor at USC that created or designed algorithms, how his ideology has been challenged. Um, and if you could speak to UCLA professors or colleagues that promote community uh, predictive policing today. Right. So the professor I was talking about is at UCLA. Uh, I know US, UC, USC, there are folks over there as well, but this particular one, um, we have been, we started organizing, and he's a professor of anthropology, uh, Professor Jeffrey Branthingham. Okay. So that's his name. He was the chair of the Department of Anthropology, uh, but then he's not the chair anymore. He's the one who, who basically got a grant from the U.S. Army back in 2005 uh, to study insurgencies and see if they could predict insurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan. Again, you know, just 
That's where a whole lot of money goes, bogus ideas. So just like everything else, that how the military industrial complex and the nonprofit industrial complex and the policing and the surveillance industrial complex, they all work together, um, Branthingham decided that this is a money-making uh, machine. Uh, brought that technology and the development of the algorithm, working with another professor of math at UCLA, Andrea Bertozzi, uh, working with another professor at, at UCI and UC Santa Cruz, um, and brought this whole uh, idea of predicting crime to the LAPD. And what was interesting was that, of course, race always remains central, that we were able to get the PowerPoint of Professor Branthingham, the first PowerPoint that he showed to LAPD in partnership with the US Army back in 2009. And in those were slides that how fear and the demonization of people was being used. There was a slide of Afghani men sitting in their shawls and AK-47 or chadars. Um, uh, and then, and it was labeled as, as terrorists. And he, and he had another slide where he'd gone to Hollenbeck in Boyle Heights in Lincoln Park, and this was a photo of young Latinx individual hanging around in the park. Um, all of them were, I think, male, looked like male identified, but could be. And that was labeled as urban predators and potential gang members and all. So now this is how race is being used as a way, and then use that slide to let LAPD know that, look, I have this magic potion in my pocket that we'll be able to predict where crime is gonna happen. You open up all the data, so there was a quid pro quo arrangement between them. LAPD opened up all their data, and the rest is all where, you know, so, so that, that's done a whole lot of damage to the community. That has absolutely redlined communities. I talked to you about the, the redlining of Skid Row. That has redlined many communities in South Central Los Angeles. On the east side, there's this constant deployment. People are being murdered within these zones as well, laser zones and other, which is a part of the predictive policing program. So on campus, we started this campaign last year uh, with Department of Anthropology and got students and faculty involved. And then this year, uh, 28 faculty from UCLA and 40 grad students wrote a letter uh, just challenging and debunking the ethics and merits of Professor Branthingham's research. So that is already there. And then in September of this year, we, we moved that on a national level, so now close to 450 um, uh, faculty and students have already signed on to that letter. So I think it is extremely critical uh, that we start organizing on campuses because the academy has been one of the main intellectual frameworks and this is basically how eugenics works as well. So in a sense, we gotta, we gotta link it with that and that's what Professor Branthingham is going, saying. Uh, UCI also has a professor over there that has been pushing risk assessments in LA County. I forget her name, uh, but she was uh, designing a risk assessment for pretrial and was involved in uh, designing risk assessments for, for the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. um, so the UC system is feeding into, um, into this system of predictive policing as you laid out. There's but a lot of money just on that. I think we need to also just lift the, 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 the money and the profit making mm. because the Bureau of Justice Assistance, which is a, a part of the Department of Justice, gives millions and millions and millions of dollars. Professor Branthingham's research, I don't know whoever was interested because we're at UCLA. Now another piece that he's working on the algorithm is looking at with the Compton School District to start pre-identifying, and I don't have the exact 
you know, just just the status of that, that looking at potential gang members and high school students and all that, that who could be, because they're moving into this eugenicist state through predictive algorithm that people, I mean, there's a math mathematician who, and I'm forgetting his name, who openly speaks about it, that, and it would be uh, black and brown children, that during even like, you know, the, the extent during a pregnancy and during the, right after the birth delivery, we will be able to see, say that if this baby is gonna grow up to be a gang member or not. So we are just moving into this age when you talk about predictive algorithm and analytics and risk assessment that it is so deeply based in eugenicist that uh, uh, thought and practice that it is very alarming and it needs to be challenged every step of the way. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up eugenics because a lot of the arguments that we're hearing for risk assessments versus like a judge deciding if someone should be released or not is that, well, an algorithm is, it, it, does, it can't be biased, like a formula can't be biased, right? And in fact, we're seeing that in terms of risk assessments, they looked at things like someone's age, someone's gender, someone's zip code to decide whether or not they should be released. And we know who lives in certain zip codes through redlining processes. Um, the second piece you would ask me about the unbiased and, and, and the way we have looked at it, and it's also being developed, and I, I wanna honor uh, Susan Price, who's a resident in Skid Row, uh, who's been really just doing a lot of lit review, I mean, in the, in their, through their own experiences of being a Skid Row resident, being an elderly black woman, being just harmed by the system constantly, and has done this, this brilliant sort of layout of the work as well, and they talk about it as a brittleness of the algorithm. That when, and so this was something that when we developed the stalker state in the information sharing environment, that it's not even mathematically possible for the algorithm to be unbiased. Mm -hmm. And then if the, if, if the algorithm was even going to take in all the gazillion data points that we have, it'll just explode, it'll break. It wouldn't even have the capacity. So it can never ever be unbiased to begin with. So what are some of the best practices for the general public in using technology so that they aren't further causing harm or exposing themselves mm -hmm. to surveillance? Yeah. I mean, I think above, right here we're sitting using technology. And I think just to desensationalize the technology as well, uh, I think the way we speak about it and particularly um, uh, with youth, because we also have a, a campaign which is uh, the fight against the war on youth. And this summer we had about, uh, I really had the pleasure of sitting in this one uh, convening of youth. There was about 40 high schoolers and 20 middle schoolers in there. And for them, the use of technology and how they were engaging in that. Um, and I think one of the messages that came out that even speaking to each other, like just be smart about it. I mean, we don't have to be fearful of that, uh, but we don't let it uh, overpower us. At least that's what I have seen and that's what I, I, I practice myself and other folks as well, that I think it is, it is a way that, you know, just, just be smart. <laughs> and I don't even know if there's any magic answer to the use of technology because yes, it is everywhere. Yes, it is there. Yes, it is transmitting our location and our presence everywhere that we are and whatever, whatever it's doing. But I think we should stay in power and also kind of just like, you know, let's not try to fall into the trap ourselves because a lot of times, and particularly for young folks in the audience, I would say that, you know, historically speaking, 
and having been a student organizer myself, young people are always a target. They are one of the primary, primary, primary targets of, of the state and people who, who intend to cause harm. So let's not give them anything because now they are using social network analysis to go after people as well. And an obscure comment is now bringing people in, something like, you know, I mean, when, when pigs fly or, or, you know, burn it down and these kind of things. And of course, it's, we are angry. We're angry, we express ourselves. So it's just a matter of like, you know, what, so I don't know if there's, there's a best practice for the use of technology, it's more like a smart practice, the use of technology. Well, on that note, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna close it up and thank our live audience and thank you, Hamid, thank for you. your time and your wisdom and such a thoughtful analysis about something that everybody needs to be thinking about. Thank you. Thanks, Hamid. And now our cultural piece, YQYG by Indigo Mateo, featuring Lauren Jimenez, produced by Richie Reseda. Focused on living, fighting for survival. Bare feet, pound the concrete, loud as a heartbeat. Yelling out, someone please help me. No one in sight to help in her plight. Wait, there's a crowd, maybe they might. Now she with the crew, so she knows she's okay. If just for now, because the cow got away, he may have escaped, but the trauma will stay. What about tomorrow? What's there to say? Don't know that, no, but this I pray. Don't live a queen to fight another day, yes, queen.
lugares donde violencia sigue y entierran a las madres que cada reina no tiene corona pero yo sé lo que tiene y no se perdona sé que hay peligro en la calle cambiarte por un hombre no se vale dale sigue reina sigue sigue reina sigue reina sigue sigue reina pero mira sigue reina sigue sigue reina sigue 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 Thanks for listening, y'all. Find links for everything we talked about today in the show notes at patreon.com slash smallbeans. The show is hosted and produced by me, Dahlia Ferlito, and me, Yvette Ole. And also produced by Kareem L. Zane and Hannah Jarzallen of White People for Black Lives and Michael Swaim of Small Beans Comedy. As always, we want you to take action. And we'll be dropping some links on how you can take action to end the use of facial recognition software by the Los Angeles Police Department and another new campaign by our friends at Vigilant Love called Services Not Surveillance. Take a look.